0: Hey, Mike here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Dark Poutine early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime.
1: Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back
0: Welcome back to Dark Poutine. I'm Mike Brown, creator, host, and uh, weirdo. And, and I'm Matthew. You are Matthew. Sidekick. So sidekick, important individual <laughs> uh, with a really awesome dog and cool husband. Oh, thank you. I love your family. Your family is a very, very nice thing. I have a good fam jam. You do. You do. We are ordinary canadian schmucks chatting about crime and the dark side of history let's get to it put on your toque grab yourself a double double and an Nanaimo bar it's time to scarf down some dark poutine and that's dark poutine not dark putin stay
2: strong ukraine we stand with you that's
0: right we definitely do Deline K. Bossy was a 26-year-old wife and mother of Cree heritage and member of the Onion Lake First Nation in Saskatchewan near Saskatoon. On May 18, 2004, after a night out with friends, Delene did not return home. Her family grew worried. When she still hadn't come home the next day, Jeremiah, Delene's husband, contacted police, who initially did not respond with much enthusiasm, telling Jeremiah and Delene's concerned parents to wait that she would probably either come home or check in soon. Dalline's family organized searches themselves, and two weeks later, Dalline's car was found abandoned. There was no sign of the missing woman. It would be more than four years later that Dalline's family would find out what had happened to their missing loved one. Dalline had been murdered by a man named Douglas Richard Hales, who, during a Mr. Big Sting, had admitted to killing the woman and then led police to Dalline's charred remains. You are listening to Dark Poutine Episode 209, MMIW The Murder of Delene K. Bossy. As with the episode on Lisa Marie Young, much of the information about Delene Bossy comes from the stories told by her family to the Native Women's Association of Canada, which then shared on their website, NWAC.ca. That resource was invaluable in my learnings about Delene's life. Without the story shared by NWAC, as it is with many victims of crimes, the lives of the victims tend to be overshadowed by what happened to them, and the story of the perpetrator of the crime becomes the main focus. We hope that isn't the case here. On May 25, 1979, Herb and Pauline Muskego proudly welcomed their first child, Delene K. Muskego, into the world in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. Delaine's parents had two boys after Delane, Dana and David. Throughout her life, Deline was a fiercely protective and supportive big sister to her younger brothers. Delene's parents, both teachers, wanted to ensure their children were well-educated about their heritage and family history. They traveled a lot, too. Residential schools, as with many indigenous families, are a darker part of their history. Delene's mom, Pauline, had attended a residential school, as had both of Pauline's parents. Herb's mother had also attended a residential school. It was these experiences that highlighted the importance of the Muskego family ensuring that the ways of their Cree ancestors were passed along to their children and subsequently their children's children. We talked about this just before we started recording.
2: Hmm. Uh, you should look it up. The Cree culture is so fascinating.
0: It really is. And
2: the design, mm-hmm. like the design language, the traditional design is so beautiful. Yeah. Every time I've gone to Saskatchewan, and I, if, I occasionally see women in I think they call them ribbon dresses. They're so Mm -hmm. gorgeous. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So learning that culture is important. Uh, It's so rich. It's so rich.
0: And their designs, you've got it written here. They're so bright and happy. Yeah. They're they're really colorful. It's really colorful. Yeah. It's like you look at it and you're like, yeah, that's cool. Their beadwork and and all that kind of stuff. And weaving and stitch work. It's gorgeous. Yeah. The Onion Lake Cree Nation, where Delane lived with her family, has a long history, some of which you can learn about on their website, onionlake.ca. After inhabiting the land for eons, Onion Lake Cree Nation's colonial origins began when, quote, Chief Sikas Kutch's band signed Treaty 6 at Fort Pitt on September 9, 1876, while other River Cree signed an adhesion to Treaty 6 in 1878 as the Makahu Band. The bands received adjacent reserves in 1879. In 1885, they were accused of participating in the Frog Lake Massacre and listed as, quote, rebel Indians. The Frog Lake Massacre came about after a long feud with colonial government representative and Indian agent Thomas Quinn. Quinn was a cruel, racist man who, according to the archive site Encyclopedia of Saskatchewan, quote, treated the Cree with harshness and arrogance. He was involved in enforced starvation of the Cree people by limiting their rations. The colonizers were also overhunting buffalo in the area, the Cree's traditional protein source wanting to ensure his people nearing starvation had food chief big bear knew he had to act decisively big bear organized a group to loot government stables the hudson's bay company post and george dill's store at frog lake on april 2, 1885 a cree war chief wandering spirit and a small group of cree warriors entered thomas quinn's home and took him hostage from a wikipedia article on the frog lake massacre quote quinn steadfastly refused to leave the town in response, Wandering Spirits shot him in the head. In the resulting panic, despite Big Bear's attempt to stop the shootings, Wandering Spirits Band killed another eight unarmed settlers. The two Catholic priests, Leon Fafard and Felix Marchand, Fafard's lay assistant, John Williscroft, as well as John Goenlock, John Delaney, William Gilchrist, George Dill, the store owner, and Charles Gouin. This caused trouble for the Cree in the area with the Canadian government. According to OnionLake.ca, the federal government refused to recognize a chief for these two bands until 1914, when they were told to amalgamate as the Onion Lake Band, end quote. Currently, the Onion Lake First Nation has educational facilities, a modern health center, and indoor-outdoor sports facilities. There are both band-owned and privately-owned businesses on reserve, providing the community with essential services in employing both residents and non-residents. Currently, 2,408 of the band's 4,003 members live on 57,737.5 hectares of reserve land, situated 50 kilometres north of Lloydminster. The Onion Lake Reserve straddles the Saskatchewan-Alberta border, making it Canada's only border Cree nation. Growing up, Delene was taught this story and others. From Delene's story on nwac.ca, quote, as a girl, Delene spent time in both Saskatoon and her home community of Onion Lake. Her extended family was very involved in her life. They taught her Cree greetings, beadwork, and how to make bannock. Deline was particularly close to her grandmother, or Kukum, in Cree. And Herb recalls how little Delene Sko, meaning Delene woman in Cree, loved to recount every detail of their time together. As an infant, Delene was given a Cree name in a traditional ceremony and was later dedicated in the church. Deline's parents wanted her to grow into a well rounded woman and encouraged her participation in sports, arts, and other activities. From NWAC.ca quote, She took ballet lessons, swimming lessons, skating, piano, gymnastics, acting. She tried a bit of everything. In high school, Deline became involved in drama and speech writing. She was a very good actress and quickly developed a love for drama and the arts. She was also involved in modeling and public speaking. End quote. Delene also had a desire for independence, acquiring work in a restaurant as her first job when she was only 13 years old, later working for a time in a Lloydminster bank while in high school. She showed a strong need to learn, and she was an excellent student, helping her classmates who needed assistance with their schoolwork. This desire to help others learn as well as her parents' roles as educators played big parts in Deline's beginning to work toward her dream job, that of teacher. Although serious about making positive moves in her life, Delene was also known for her great sense of humor. She loved to make people laugh. After high school, Delene had taken a course in business administration to help put her through university so she could achieve her ultimate career goals. It was at school in 1997 that Delene met and fell in love with her future husband, Jeremiah Bossie. On November 21st, 2017, as part of the National Inquiry into Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls at a truth-gathering process, Jeremiah Bossey spoke about Delene. He said, quote, It was Halloween, one of the weirdest nights to meet somebody, I guess, because you're all in costume. I had been out with my sister and one of our family friends, and I was dressed up as this big white ball. It was supposed to be a snowman, and painted my face and my hair white, and that's how I met my future wife, dressed up as a big old snowman, and met her, and we talked, and exchanged numbers. End quote. It was Deline who later called Jeremiah, and they got to know each other a bit. But it was weeks later, at a chance meeting at a nightclub, when things heated up between the couple. Through tears, Jeremiah told the inquiry, quote, And I just remember her smile. The first thing I seen was her smile. She had such a big bright smile on her face, and I didn't think I was going to cry right away, but... I just remember her always being happy and I miss, I miss that. I do. I miss that a lot. But now, you know, I wish, you know, there was a way I could see that smile one last time. End quote. Uh, I feel so badly for this guy. Totally.
2: You know, I was, I was looking at a picture of Darlene this morning, mm-hmm. just sort of staring at it with her looking back. Yeah. Like, and she has this like lovely hairdo. Mm-hmm. I'm such a gay man. I'm like her hair
0: was great. <laughs> You're like, like Jonathan Van Ness.
2: <laughs> but she's like you know her her face is framed with this lovely hairdo. She has mm-hmm. this great smile. Yeah. And I'm staring at her and I'm like, she's just like she looks like this friendly person that would have been like a great coworker I would have worked up with or as a friend or something. Sure. She, she just looks like such
0: a such a nice person. Well, I think who she was. Who a lot of these people are get lost yeah. in the stories about what happened to them, right?
2: Because this is a missing murdered Indigenous woman, right? But it's not; it's Darlene. That's right. right. It yeah. is this individual human being, and mm-hmm. and and the news just kind of so often just it just creates.
0: Well, this, that this is why know? I am so happy that I found that website, the Native Women's Association it's of a good Canada. Website. Because they they intentionally tell the stories of these people without much dialogue about the individual that did it at all. It's about the person. It is about them as a human being. This is a human being. I know, and it's 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 you know. I'm just staring at
2: a picture, and this, mm-hmm. you know, me, Mike, like it's, uh, doing research for these shows is always so hard yeah. because it's not just some news story or we're like digging in a bit and trying to understand them as human beings. And it's Mm -hmm. hard sometimes, it really is.
0: And this is is the thing that I want this show to always sort of strive for, Mm. is to remind listeners that, you know, true crime as a genre doesn't necessarily always do a good job of this. It's frustrating at, at times to be you know, painted with that brush. It's hard. Yeah. Yeah. Like people who have never listened to Dark Poutine or have never... um, Looked into it. Looked into the show at all. Judge you. Will come at us. Yeah. Saying, oh, true crime is, is a horrific thing. We have been guilty of like some real faux pas over the years. When you first started. When we first started. Yeah. But as I grew in my understanding... Mm. Um, I've grown, I think as a human being and trying to approach these things in a more sensitive way. Yeah. Uh, I struggle with true crime a lot. I really do as a genre. It's so strange, isn't it? hmm I, I struggle with it in a big way.
2: Well, I think, you know, when you start, you probably didn't think you're going to struggle, but as you get into it and you start knowing these people mm-hmm. through the voices of their relatives right? and their friends. Yep. You know, I think it kind of hits home. Like I said last week, you know, with that the Donnelly one, it's 142 years ago. I still yeah. feel bad for those people, right? Because mm-hmm. you start to understand them. And, you know, Darlene seemed like a great woman, right? So she's, it's just, she's not, it's not just this wash of, oh, a First Nations woman. No, her name
0: was Darlene. Yeah. Right? And her husband loved her. And her, her parents loved, loved her. her. And
2: she was doing stuff with her life. She looked great, you know? Yeah. Fantastic. She, was, she seemed like such a lovely woman.
0: Deline and Jeremiah were engaged on Valentine's Day in 1998, married in 1999, and their daughter Faith was born in 2001. Jeremiah spent some time on family leave from his job with the school board after Faith's birth, so Deline could attend the University of Saskatchewan where she continued taking courses and focusing on a degree in education. Everyone who knew Darlene saw that she was a natural educator and knew that one day she would make a fantastic teacher. Darlene was just beginning her fourth year of university in the spring of 2004. On the afternoon of May 18, 2004, Darlene and a friend attended First Nations Assembly meetings in downtown Saskatchewan. While at the meetings, Darlene ran into some friends from Onion Lake whom she hadn't seen in a while. The group made plans to grab some dinner and go out for a few drinks that evening at Jack's nightclub. But first Deline went home to change and help three-year-old Faith get into her bath. Deline told her daughter to be good and that she'd see her the next day. Deline said goodbye to her younger brother Dana and his pregnant girlfriend who were staying with them at the time. She gave Jeremiah a hug and a kiss, telling him that she'd see him late tonight or in the morning if he'd gone to bed before she got in. There's nothing at all unusual or worrisome, about Dillene's behavior at that time. This was the last time that Jeremiah recalled seeing Dillene as she got into their only car, their white Chevy Cavalier, and drove off. Jeremiah thought it was strange when he woke up alone in bed the next morning. He presumed that maybe not wanting to drive home after drinking, perhaps Dillene had spent the night with some friends. Jeremiah was starting to become concerned as the day wore on and he had not heard from Dillene. He had to work that afternoon, and as Deline was not home by suppertime, he had to leave work and pick Faith up from daycare to take her home. Dana, Deline's brother, had agreed to take care of his niece at Deline's home as Jeremiah had to return to work. Jeremiah started calling around to friends and some family. No one had seen Deline since the night before. Jeremiah's concern was growing. He called the police when he got home from work. Jeremiah later told the National Inquiry, The police kind of seemed to brush it off like it was not important. And then I asked, you know, well, how long do I have to wait until she's considered missing? And they said, well, usually it's about 24 hours and we'll send somebody to talk to you either tonight or first thing in the morning. And they said, you know, by morning, maybe she'll call you, end quote. There had been some personal trauma recently. According to court documents, quote, Deline and Jeremiah had lost a baby in February 2004. And Jeremiah observed that the miscarriage caused Deline to change. She would go out and come back some time later, but she would always phone and let Jeremiah know where she was. In describing their relationship, he said, quote, "We were happy." End quote. Jeremiah didn't want to worry Pauline and Herb needlessly, so he decided to wait to tell them that Delene was missing. He went to bed again alone for the second night, but was unable to get much sleep. Of course, a police officer came by the next morning to ask some questions about Delene and for a description of her. It was after the cop left that Jeremiah called Herb and Pauline to tell them that Delene was missing. Herb was initially angry with Jeremiah, admonishing him for not calling them right away. Pauline and Herb drove to Jeremiah and Delene's house right away, and Delene's parents and husband went to the police station to file a formal missing persons report on Delene K. Bossie. The officer there talked to them about reasons why a person might willingly go missing. To which Jeremiah said none of these things fit with Delene." Regardless, cops told the family to wait and that Delene would probably show up or contact them soon. According to nwac.ca, In the 2007 documentary, Stolen Sisters, Sergeant Phil Farian attempts to explain the Saskatoon Police Service's response by saying, quote, Because right off the bat you would say, well, there's no reason for my family member to leave, so it has to be criminal. Someone has taken her. It has to be. And yet oftentimes, it is not. And sometimes people go away and come back, end quote. Yeah, but... Right. I mean,
2: right? Right. There's also over 200 cases of missing and murdered individuals. Well, many more than 200. Oh, is it? Okay. Yeah. It's it, a lot, right? Yes. And Aboriginal women represent something like 10% of all females murdered in this country.
0: Oh, goodness. And, yeah. are,
2: and are only like 3% of the population. Yeah, right. So a much higher rate. So all of this sort of... Oh, people often go missing. It doesn't mean something was wrong. Yeah, but start looking at patterns, guys, mm-hmm. right? And maybe jump on it faster when statistically there's some issues.
0: Well, I think this is what the inquiries have been about, Yeah, is to look at why yeah. this is happening uh, and what we can do differently, because there are lots of recommendations.
2: Well, first of all, think of people as human beings. There is that. mm mm-hmm.
0: It was Delene's family and friends who had to step up to look for her. Jeremiah intimated his experience over the next few days to the national inquiry. He said, quote, And you know, day three and day four go on and the Muskego family pulled together. There's tons of help come in. My house was full of family members for two or three weeks. People took time off work to come help search for her. And this is just family, end quote. Police also began talking to Jeremiah as though he knew more than he did. The whole family was becoming frustrated with the lack of police interest in helping to find Deline. It was tough on Jeremiah, trying to juggle the search for his missing wife with work and caring for a three-year-old little girl. Jeremiah said that it was the family doing most of the police work themselves, running down Deline's friends. The family put up scores of missing posters with Deline's photo and description. Eventually, a $5,000 reward was offered for information on her disappearance, and this later ballooned to $10,000. The posters read, Missing, Deline K. Bossy, Muskego. Aboriginal, 5 foot 5 inches tall, approximately 170 pounds. Wears glasses, age 26. Member of the Onion Lake First Nation. Last seen by her family May eighteenth, 2004, in Saskatoon. Calls began coming in from as far away east as Montreal, and from Vancouver in the west, but there was nothing concrete. At one point, a cousin called Jeremiah. He had spotted a car that looked like the Chevy Cavalier that Dillene had been driving. Jeremiah called police to verify the license plate, but somehow there was a mix-up, and the officer said that the plate given to them did not match the one they had on file. This mistake would later prove costly, as it was determined that this might have been Dillene's car and quite possibly the person behind the wheel was the man who had, unknown to the family at the time, killed Delene. On June 4, 2004, two weeks after Delene disappeared, Jeremiah got a phone call from a friend who'd been helping to search for her. The man believed he had found the car that Delene had been driving in Sutherland, a neighborhood in central Saskatoon. Jeremiah later testified, quote, "'And I phoned police. "'I said, this is urgent. "'I said, my stolen car has been found.' My wife was in that car, missing. I said, how soon can you have a car? Oh, well, we'll have somebody there as soon as possible. That was the attitude I got. And I was like, are you kidding me? I could be there in 10 minutes, 15 minutes tops. I got in my car. I actually sped over there, hoping police would actually chase me to get somebody there on time because this was urgent to me. I beat the police by about 25 minutes before they showed up at that location. And there was no urgency, end quote. Jeremiah noted to the officer that it was definitely his car and that, peering through the windows, he'd noticed some things seemed to be missing from inside. The steering wheel cover and the floor mats. The police took the car and held it for a couple of weeks, losing track of it at one point and then returning it to Jeremiah, seemingly untouched. Jeremiah just went back to using the car for the next nine months. Police were again focusing attention on Jeremiah, interviewing him again and again. And only then, after he'd been driving the car for three quarters of a year, did they want to perform forensic tests on the car, which Jeremiah and some other people thought odd. Police did indicate that they had someone else they were looking into, Douglas Richard Hales, a bouncer at Jack's nightclub who people had seen Delane Bossy in the company of on the day she disappeared. But that was about it. That was all they knew about that. The mounting pressure was affecting Jeremiah mentally and emotionally, and over the next few years he went through a lot of upheavals in his life. Herb and Pauline, meanwhile, were so frustrated by police inaction that they hired a private detective to help them. That investigator spoke to everyone who might have seen Deline in her travels that evening, including the police's number one person of interest, Douglas Richard Hales. In the months after her disappearance while she was still missing, Delene's parents, Herb and Pauline, also spoke with Métis feminist filmmaker and associate professor at the University of Victoria, Christine Welsh, for her documentary, Finding Dawn, that was focused on the epidemic of missing or murdered Indigenous women in Canada. Pauline Muskego told Welsh that, till January of 2005, the police simply refused to believe that Delene was anything more than a person who may be willfully missing. Deline's mom and dad said that they were told by police that missing people will often contact family during the holidays. When Delene neglected to call home between Christmas 2004 and New Year's 2005, only then were they willing to upgrade Delene's disappearance to a criminal investigation. Deline's family, of course, knew better, but they had to wait more than six months before the case was considered worthy of more attention by investigators. To filmmaker Christine Walsh, Delene's mother, Pauline, said that Delene's disappearance, quote, is more a priority to police now, and we're thankful for that. But we just wish that we would have had more help from them to begin with. We don't want to say anything that might jeopardize the search that is going on right now. We don't want to make anyone look bad. We just want to find our daughter. End quote.
2: See right right there, Mike? There's a level of class Mm -hmm. and perseverance and determination there. Right. She... She was obviously probably upset with the way things had gone down with the police.
0: I w- in the video that I watched with her, you could see the level of frustration and fear. But and... she's not like dumping on anyone. She's yeah. like,
2: okay, fine. Mm-hmm. Let's, let's move on because I want to figure out what happened. Right. Right. That yeah. my, that takes, I don't know, we use the word class. I'm not sure what it is or... There's just sort of um, an intelligence and uh, just wanting to get to the answers and there. Yeah. You know? yeah. It's maturity
0: as well. Yeah. 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 In the first weekend in May 2005, almost a year after Delane's disappearance, police began searching a rural area where investigators believed Delane might be discovered. They invited press to a media conference on the site. When asked by reporters why it had taken so long to expand the search for Deline, police claimed that in the early investigation there had been sightings and that, quote, various people believed that Deline was still alive and, quote, did not want to be found. Although police admitted they had been unable to substantiate the sightings, as Deline's family had indicated, officers thought she might reach out at some point, And this is why they were not as active as they could have been. As well as police and other professional searchers, the people looking for Delene at the rural site included friends and family of Delene's and members of the indigenous communities around the Prairie Provinces. There was no sign of Delene. It would be more than four years until Delene's family would find out what happened to her. They'd been working hard through various vigils, walks, media involvement, and other events to keep her name in the public consciousness the whole time. And we will take a break right here. And we are back. Matthew, your thoughts. (laughs) Thoughts. Yeah.
2: Frustration, 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 Mike.
0: We were talking about this before the episode, and you you mentioned like every one of these episodes you feel frustrated about. I get so upset with these episodes. Mm -hmm. But guess what? I'm glad, because it indicates to me that you are a human feeling, (laughs) thinking being. Yeah. Um, I know some people who actually will skip over. One of yeah. these episodes because they but don't want to impor- hear
2: it. It's important. The reason why you're doing these is because they need to be heard, mm-hmm. and, and there's going to be more. And it's frustrating because it's like time and time and time again. Mm-hmm. You you like when when I was reading the script, I'm like, oh, again. Yep. this happened to a First Nations woman again. Yep, the family was treated this way again. Yep. The mistakes were made again. Mm-hmm. And I think this is part of, sorry, I'm, get, I'm getting really raw. Uh,
0: no, no, you here. don't need to apologize. Yeah. I think this is part of why we need to talk about it because yeah. if it's happening again and again and again, and we can show that there's a pattern, yeah. something is going to happen. People are going to become aware of it yeah. and say, wait a minute, something is going on here. Yeah. You know, like I say, we've had inquiries, we're having recommendations come out of those inquiries. Some of them are being implemented we need to keep talking about this stuff. Mm. It's part of uh, what I can do for reconciliation. Mm -hmm. If I can make a difference in any way by us having a conversation about this, by us maybe enlightening one individual about this, we are doing something good. Yeah. On August 10th, 2008, Chief Weggill of the Saskatoon Police Service requested a meeting to inform the family of new information they had received about Delene. Deline's family was told that she was dead. She had been murdered, and her body had been found after a man named Douglas Richard Hales admitted to the killing in a Mr. Big Sting operation, which led him to showing police where he'd disposed of Delene. Police kept the details of the state of Delene's remains from the family at this point, only indicating that she'd been found. It wasn't until the next day when Hales was in court to face his charges, first-degree murder, and indignity to a human body, that Delene's family heard that her body had been burned after her murder. Bones and her wedding rings were all that were left of the beloved mother, sister, and auntie. So is this normal? I don't know. And I don't, if it is, it shouldn't be. Did the police
2: not tell the family this information that would be really upsetting until they're in
0: the court for legal reasons? For legal reasons. I don't know. Okay. You would think that you would be able to tell the family that there was going to be a charge of indignity to a human body and the specifics of that. To have a family sitting in a courtroom
2: and it's just blurted out there Mm -hmm. versus, you know, that's something I would work up to. Right, right. Or, I'd sit them down and slowly work up to it because
0: right. it's horrifying. Instead of just bashing them with it. In, 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 in quote, a public space. Right. right. Yeah. yeah. That's probably something that there should have been a social worker or somebody sitting with them and having this conversation. I think of someone you loved if they're murdered, and you're just sitting in a cord mic and this just comes out? Mm-hmm. Like the first time you've heard it? Right. Well, that is a legal question with a lot of this stuff. They can't get into how, what, or why with the family because it may leak out into the community and therefore Mm. uh, may jeopardize the case. But this is a different thing. He was being charged with this, which is going to be public anyway. The day before, you think somebody can sit the family down and
2: go, hey guys, I have to share something with you to prepare you for tomorrow. Right. Yeah.
0: It's very insensitive. Police had been interested in Hales since early on in their investigation into Darlene's disappearance. According to court documents, Darlene was last seen at Jack's on May 18th and 19th, 2004, a Tuesday evening. And she apparently had come by herself. Hales had been working at Jack's for a short time as a doorman and a bouncer and was working that evening. As things were winding down at the bar, a co-worker of Hales, Sean Polyuk noticed him speaking with a dark-haired girl, nicely attired, in what looked like a black jacket. The woman danced and drank, leaving the club with Hales near closing time. Sean Pollyuk later identified Delene K. Bossie as the woman he'd seen leaving the bar with Hales. And there was more information from court documents. On that Tuesday evening in 2004, Jacqueline Clark was working at Jack's and was asked by her boss if she could give a bouncer, Doug Hales, a ride home to Sutherland. That evening... She observed a lady of short stature wearing a skirt and nylons with black heels. She thought the lady was overdressed for hip-hop night, almost as if she was going somewhere else. She was smiling and having fun, but was quite intoxicated. Ultimately, she was asked to leave, and the witness noticed that she was speaking with Hales. She said Hales continued to work after the lady left, and towards closing, she asked him if he needed a ride home, to which he replied, No, I'm going to a party. End quote. As the missing posters had gone up around the city, one was placed in Jack's nightclub. Another co-worker, Sam Kerr, asked, wasn't that the girl you were with? And Sean Pollyock also commented, isn't that the one you brought in? Hale said, yes, but I took her home. From court documents, Sam Kerr and his girlfriend, Dawn Langel were at a Sutherland trailer socializing in the early hours of Wednesday, May 19, 2004, when Hales arrived with a woman who introduced herself several times. It was Deline Bossy, as Kerr described her as happy, energetic, and looking to party. The two, according to Kerr, went outside a couple of times to smoke marijuana and ultimately Kerr asked them to leave. During the 30 to 45 minutes they were at the trailer, they were not drinking any alcohol. Kerr also indicated that Dalene was not stumbling around and added, As a doorman, you don't let a lady leave while drunk. When he saw Hales the next morning, he did not seem intoxicated. Langell recalled that the woman was Daleen Bossey and that she had long hair and glasses. She recalled them drinking at the trailer, although they were only there perhaps 15 minutes. She described the two as drinking, giddy, and flirting. She saw no inappropriate behavior. That was the last anyone other than Douglas Hales ever saw Daleen Bossey, end quote. It was in April of 2005, 11 months after Dalene's disappearance, that police formally interviewed Douglas Hales for the first time in regard to Dalene Bossy's disappearance. Hale admitted, quote, to meeting Dalene on the evening of May 18, 2004 at Jack's nightclub. He said she initially asked him for a light for her cigarette and asked him if he would mind buying her a drink. He told them that he did not have a ride home and that she offered him one. They drove around for a short time and he declined to attend a party on the west side of town when she invited him. They ended up in Sutherland where he briefly went to his residence at the trailer to change his shoes. The trailer was owned by his friend and co-worker Sam Kerr. Shortly after, he said that he and Deline had parted company when he left her car and she drove away. He said that he had bought a newspaper and then walked to the trailer, end quote. So, why would it
2: take... 11 months for this guy to be properly interviewed.
0: I don't know. So he was interviewed. They obviously had questioned him before. They had had conversations with him at the beginning. Mm -hmm. But why on earth it took 11 months for a formal interview is beyond me. Because
2: this isn't like some huge metropolitan area mm -hmm. with so many people that they couldn't figure out who was with whom
0: and well they did they knew right away that he had had been in her company
2: and then and she's dead and they're like
0: well they didn't know that she was uh, dead right they thought she was missing and then there were people claiming that they had seen her uh as far away as vancouver and so okay yeah well she's still alive then have you verified that no but we're just gonna believe this guy some rando believe this vancouver saw first nations woman
2: (laughs) Yeah. And called going, oh, sir.
0: Yeah. Like, come on. Exactly. God. Hales did not offer up anything else of use to the investigators. For more than two years, the case dragged on without any further resolution. At the end of 2007, Saskatoon police asked the RCMP for help, and they began a Mr. Big slash undercover crime boss operation they called Operation Frendo from court documents. In this operation, a number of undercover RCMP members posed as members of a criminal organization and worked at winning Hales' confidence. The operation was designed to gradually introduce Hales into the organization, and as part of Operation Frendo, the police engaged him in staged, ever-increasing criminal activities, hoping to convince Hales that he could be part of a very successful clandestine organization with the potential to earn significant amounts of money and be a part of the brotherhood. Such activities involved illegal firearms, contraband smuggling, credit card fraud and a culminating incident of significant, ostensible violence. The undercover technique calls for the design of what are termed scenarios, much as a serial television show might be scripted. Each scenario was designed to involve the target, which in this case Hales was, to the point where he had a significant expectation that he could participate in an upcoming major operation with the organization, having the potential to earn a great deal of money. To that end, however, he was required to be approved or vetted by the big boss. This person posed as the head of the criminal organization and was universally portrayed as an individual of great power and authority with the ability to reach into almost any segment of society to influence the course of human affairs. End quote. So, in the summer of 2008, Hales believed he was working his way up the ladder of that criminal enterprise. He was about to meet the big boss, who was, of course, the undercover RCMP operative, and in those meetings, Hale would be vetted for a bump up and, if successful, involvement in a lucrative criminal job that would pay him a significant amount of cashola.
2: Okay, we're going to talk about Mr. Big at the end of the show, but yes. what a moron. Yeah. I it. It's, I don't know. I, I'm at a loss for words of how stupid this guy is. And also, this really shows his character, doesn't it? hmm Like, to be so easily roped into, oh, I'm going to be part of, like, a criminal gang. Yep. What a dick. You know what? It just, what upsets me is, you know, you compare him as a human being versus Darlene. Mm-hmm. Right? And it's truly somebody that has life together going to do something taken away by somebody who has nothing
0: to offer. Nothing to offer, yeah. Right. During a car ride with an operative, a newspaper with an article about Darlene Bossy's disappearance was placed on the seat next to Hale's. Hales read the paper and was overheard by the operative giggling while he read the article about Deline and another missing woman. Hales spoke to the operative about the women in the article in derogatory language. The car ride took Hales and the operative to visit a woman who was pretending to be the operative's girlfriend and who was on the run from him and they were going to confront her and teach her a lesson. With Hales outside the pair faked a violent confrontation and the female operative was laid down on the floor amid a pool of fake blood. Hales saw the woman there briefly, looking badly beaten and possibly dead. After the setup, he and the male operative left. Back in the car, which of course was wired for sound and video, the operative and Hales talked about what had just happened. The operative asked Hales how he would handle a situation like the one he thought he had just been through. Although Hales was cagey at first, the operative pressed him, and according to court documents, quote, observe that until someone has gone down the road of a serious crime implying a homicide, they do not know how they would deal with such a situation. With that generalized statement, Hales responds, well, yeah, I've done it. To which the operative asked, done what? Hales then says, I've killed killed a hooker. The operative indicates to Hales that he does not need to impress him, after which Hales says, yeah, I'm not lying. It, it's it's in the paper. Actually, the one you brought that they're talking about her, four years. They never found her because I knew how to get rid of her. I did it the proper way. And I did it all myself because I didn't want to get caught. I could, I could tell the whole scenario if you want. Shortly thereafter, Hale says further, Yeah, yeah, it had to be done. I, I finished it. It had to be done. I couldn't let her, you know, like a loose string. I couldn't let her just go away with a beating. I had to. I I got rid of rage out on that. uh, Yeah, I don't feel sorry. She deserved every bit of it, end quote. I'm going to break into my own script here and just say, I have a problem with him painting her as a sex worker.
3: Mm.
0: There's no evidence that she was or that she was doing that. It is just him stripping this dead woman of her dignity. Mm-hmm. You know, it's another way for him to minimize what he did to her. That's all he's doing.
2: Right. It, it's all he's doing. And uh, these people like this, it's like, oh yeah, she was this or she was that. And I killed her. Yeah. Whenever somebody is like obviously caught out and trying to minimize, yep. I just completely and utterly ignore what they say because nothing they have to say I'm interested in.
0: Yeah. You know, consider the source. Consider the source.
2: Yeah. He's just, he's sullying her name. Mm-hmm. And he's the moron who wants to be Mr. Big
0: Murderer. So.
2: Right. Period.
0: Hales then admitted to having put a pillow over Darlene's face before he stomped on her head outside her car so the act wouldn't leave any evidence on his clothing. In an interview with the Big Boss on August 7th, 2008, Hales talked more about the incident. He was claiming that Deline was a sex worker, of which there is no evidence. He claimed that he paid her to have sex with him. He said, quote, We got drunk, and she didn't fulfill what I wanted her to do, and I was pretty upset at the time, and I drove her out to the bush, and I choked her, and after she was unconscious or dead, I'm not sure, I dragged her out into a pile, and I started her on fire. I grabbed whatever I could in the area from the car, whatever, paper, anything that burned to help burn. Make sure it was on her. I then cleaned out the car. There was some floor mats, seat covers, a steering wheel cover. The big boss later asked, So you decided you were gonna kill her before you went to that spot? To which Hale replied, Yes. Hales then directed the big boss and another operative to the spot where he had left Dollen's remains. With his confession, A warrant for Douglas Richard Hales' arrest was drawn up. He was taken into custody and cautioned in a Home Depot parking lot. Hales was saying he didn't want to talk at all, but police artfully navigated him into eventually speaking with them. Hales backpedaled on the confession at first, claiming Darlene had died of alcohol poisoning and he'd burned her body in a panic, not wanting to be blamed for her death. Eventually, when pressed with the evidence, Hales admitted to having manually strangled Darlene in the car, after he says she laughed at him when he was, quote, unable to perform. It is unclear whether Darlene was sober enough to have given any kind of informed consent to Hales. As she is not here, we only have his rather spurious version of events. Regardless, Hales did again admit to having put a pillow over Darlene's face before stomping her to death and then burning her body. In 2014, Hales, who'd pleaded not guilty, was tried for Darlene's murder, and the Mr. Big Evidence figured prominently. The verdict was put off and the defense pushed for a mistrial, asked for the trial to be reopened following a Supreme Court ruling on the admissibility of Mr. Big Evidence, but Justice Gerald Albright dismissed both requests. Albright outlined the Supreme Court ruling as he read his verdict. He said the Mr. Big Sting confession and evidence were admissible in Hale's case. Hales was found guilty of second-degree murder and offering an indignity to a human body in the death of Deline Bossy. Justice Albright handed Hales a 25-year sentence with no parole for 15 years. Hales appealed his conviction. In an unusual move, a camera was allowed in the courtroom for the appeal proceedings taking place in 2015.
2: Do you know why there is a camera? I thought that was illegal here in Canada.
0: Well, I think it's for, in Saskatchewan, they were doing, I mentioned it, it's part of a, I didn't mention it. Okay. It was part of a, uh, it's part of a pilot project that they were doing at the time to, to, um, better communicate, better communicate a decision. Mm-hmm. So rather than rely on court, rep, people in, in court who are reporters or media then taking their spin on it. Right. Just giving it directly to Here is exactly what was
2: said. So so it was just the, just the announcement of the decision. That's correct. Okay. Probably makes sense to me, right? Because it's like straight from the mouth of the courts who's deciding it, so we can see what they're saying. Exactly. Okay, nothing wrong with that.
0: Although the video of the hearing is available on YouTube, much of it is inaudible. Sadly, I can't clean it up enough to play it for you here. Justice Jackson was not mic'd during her oral delivery of the Supreme Court's verdict, and a microphone was placed far away from her by a member of the press. Regardless, I will read a large portion of that decision now. Justice Jackson said in part, We are unanimous in our verdict. As is our usual practice in preparation for today's appeal hearing, we reviewed all of the material available to us that is relevant to the appeal. Ms. Jasper, Hale's lawyer, on behalf of the appellant, has put forth three grounds of appeal— We have considered those closely as represented in the appellant's factum and by virtue of your arguments today. In none of these grounds do we see a basis to intervene with the decision of Justice Albright. In our view, he committed no reversible errors of fact or law. Furthermore, the verdict under Section 235 of the Criminal Code RSC 1985 CC 46 is not unreasonable and is not unsupported by the evidence. Indeed, the evidence against the appellant we find is overwhelming. The case against the appellant is composed not solely of admissions made in the context of the Mr. Big operation, but rather it is supported by his actions. Among those actions, we would list the fact that he took the undercover officers to the site where the body was found, and he also gave a warned statement to the investigating officers in Saskatoon. Having regard for all of the arguments and the evidence, we find we must dismiss the appeal. So after 11 years, Deline K. Bossy had received justice of a sort. But Jeremiah had lost his wife. Deline's brothers had lost their sister. Her parents had lost their daughter. And most tragic of all, Faith had lost her mom. Deline never got a chance to be a teacher. What a waste. I chose to cover this story during my research of another more widely publicized case involving a white woman. I was shocked to discover that this case, no less compelling and in some ways more so got mentioned in the press 15 times less than that of the other case, so I chose to do this one first. As well, according to the Native Women's Association of Canada, only 53% of murder cases in the NWAC Sisters in Spirit database have been solved, compared to 84% of murder cases across the country. An RCMP report in 2013 indicated that across Canada between 1980 and 2012, 1,181 Indigenous women and girls were killed or went missing. That number continues to grow, despite the inquiries and other efforts. I've said
2: a lot about this in uh, earlier episodes. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm going to be hard on them. I'm not a police officer. I'm not an investigator. Right. But had... Everyone jumped on this, believed the family, tried to understand what was going on quicker. They wouldn't have needed a big, Mr. Big Operation, probably. No,
0: I agree. And also, Jeremiah had someone call him to say, I think I see your car. And there was miscommunication about what the license plate number was, and it yeah. turned out it actually was the car. All these things, right? Like, they could have had Douglas Hales in custody,
2: so t- to me, the whole Mister Big thing was they kind of forced themselves to get to that point,
0: point. Uh, and that's uh, what I think too. I think it because it's a tool that is used. Mm. Maybe Canadian policing has set themselves up to rely on it a little too much. We
2: can just Mister Big it later.
0: Yeah, yeah. I don't know if yeah. that's. I don't want to. I don't want to say that that's what the police are
2: doing. No, right? Who knows? But I tell you, Mike, one of these times. Hmm. One of these times, uh, a court or a Supreme Court is going to chuck out a Mister Big case because of the Mister Bigness of it, mm-hmm. and all of these cases are going to. There's going to be appeals. It's going to fall like dominoes. Yeah, honestly, I'm. I'm. You heard it here, folks. Well, we're from Matthew. Well. Not, <laughs> we're heading for an issue eventually with this. Yep. I'm. I'm not a Mister Big fan. I like honestly. I'm obviously great this guy got caught. Yeah. But, oh, it's dangerous how they're doing. It is.
0: It is. I've actually had conversations with lawyers who are defense attorneys Mm. that are actively working to have Mr. Big uh, confessions thrown out. Yeah. Because they don't feel that they're constitutional. Yep. And if that happens, absolutely, we're going to see killers walk free. 100%. Some serial killers might actually be walking around free because...
2: So, judicial system, if you happen to listen to Dark Poutine... I doubt it. Take some advice from Matthew (laughs) here. Yeah. Stop doing that. Yeah, stop it.
0: (laughs) Did you have any other problems with the case? Like, like the car. Her car is found. They don't really do any initial forensics on it.
2: It, It's just insane. Like, it's this weird Mm laissez-faire kind of... I mean, what else was keeping them busy during this time
0: i'm I'm sure there were uh, lots of other things that were going on that that the the police have more than one case that they're working on every every day yeah, I don't want to be yeah its best not to bash on them no,
2: or... I'm not bashing on them i'm just it's just distressing you know me i you know there's there's police officers who are good bad and ugly like any other human being right Mm -hmm. and i I think the majority of people don't want to do a bad job but when you see this i just get frustrated
0: yeah and that's it for dark routine episode 209 mmiw the murder of dalene k bossy that's right it's time for voicemails you can leave us a message at one 327 5786 or one eight seven 877 dark We'd love to hear from you. Let's see who called us this week. All righty, let's listen to our first voicemail.
3: Hi, Mike and Matthew. My name's Emily. Um, I'm currently living in Ottawa, but I'm originally from southwestern Ontario in a tiny town called Drumbo. It's like 50 kilometers From London. So when I hear Matthew speaking about Southwestern Ontario, it just brings such joy to my heart. I just, just finished the episode about the Black Donnellys, which, if you're from Southwestern Ontario, you probably went on a school field trip to the Lucan Museum, which I definitely did at a very young age. I mean, I think I was 12. So to learn about this massacre um, was very interesting. Now, that being said, it was definitely uh, biased against the Donnelly. So I have this strange fascination with this case. And you did such justice to it. I just really... Love it. And you don't often hear commentary on it where the Donnellys aren't seen in like a totally negative light. So I just really want to say thank you for that. I also want to say thank you especially to Matthew for shedding the light on the darkness that is southwestern Ontario and that it is a strange, dark, beautiful, weird, problematic awful and amazing place. It's somewhere that I will probably never live again for many, many, many reasons, but I am somehow proud to say that it is my home. Um, Mike, I just finished your book not too long ago, and it is beautiful. I cannot wait for you to write a second one. Please tell me you're writing a second one. Again, I really appreciate the way that you shed light on many aspects of cases that don't necessarily get covered by other podcasts or true crime documentaries. Um so I just really want to say thank you for that. Uh so anyway, I hope you guys have a great day. Go shit in your hat. Thanks guys.
0: Well, wow. How about them apples? Drumbo, that's near Woodstock. Drumbo Woodstock, yeah. Ontario, yeah. yeah. Uh I'm I'm glad that she enjoyed our our Donnelly's episode. And I thought, yeah, like everything that i've read about the donnellys up to this point was totally biased against them and painted them as evil and demonic yeah that's what happens it's ridiculous yeah. like they they weren't the ones who murdered like they, they weren't the ones who went and murdered an entire family it was that family that was murdered well i think what do we call it these days victim shaming or something right victim blaming victim blaming yeah. right like they are dead right yeah <laughs> yeah All right, let's listen to another one. Oh, dear. Uh, Hi, Mike and Matthew. Uh, This is Darcy calling from Lucan, and I just listened to the Donnelly episode. Uh, You just mentioned that uh, there's a
3: hockey rivalry from Strathroy to Lucan in in the 80s, and uh, I wanted to let you guys know that that's still going strong. I have three boys in hockey right now, and yeah. Strathroy is pretty much their uh, their enemy there. Uh, yeah, anyways, that was a good episode. I always enjoy hearing uh, everyone's take on the Donnelly cases. Um, and yeah, go shit in your hat.
0: Well, thank you so much. Thanks, that's, Darcy. That's great.
2: That's amazing. Yeah. It's been 40 years, and there's still that sort of hockey fight between Lucan yeah. and Strathroy.
0: Back home, it was uh, Chester. And Bridgewater High School. But now Bridgewater's at junior high, so I guess that wouldn't be. But now I guess it would be Parkview and Chester. There'd be big scraps. Yeah. <laughs> I, remember, I remember someone actually getting into a fight uh, in the men's room at a Chester-Bridgewater hockey game. I was there. Right. Um, did you cause it? I did not cause it, but there was someone in the bathroom who may or may not have peed on one of the... <laughs> the Chester fans whilst standing at the urinal. Oh my God. Yeah. Anyway, so bad things happen. <laughs> Thanks Darcy. In hockey. <laughs> Here's another voicemail.
1: Hey guys, this is Rachel Collings from Collingwood, Ontario. I uh, just wanted to say that I love the show um, and have been listening for several years. Kind of a funny story, but not really funny. But um, a couple of years ago, my husband and I were driving through um, Vancouver to go uh, to Whistler on our honeymoon, and we were listening to the Babes in the Woods podcast, and coincidentally, as we're driving through, we realized we were in Stanley Park as we were listening to the podcast, which was kind of creepy, but kind of funny in the same way. I don't know. Um, I'm sure you guys have heard on recent events in the last couple weeks that they think that they've actually found the identities of the two boys that were in Stanley Park, David and Derek. Um, through genetic testing from one of the descendants of a supposed sister that the boys had. Um, I think it would be great if you guys could do, like, an updated episode to that case. It's is such a, an important case in Canadian history, especially for BC history that's over 70 years old. And I think it's just amazing that technology and science has brought us the identities of these unnamed boys after so many years. Keep doing what you're doing. I love the show. Um, yeah. And have a great day, guys. Bye.
0: Well, thank you so much. I don't know if we have to do an update to the Babes in the Woods episode because you just did it. Yay. Yay. So, <laughs> um, no, I, I I, am looking at a different way to maybe approach that. If there's an update at all, we'll keep you posted. Yeah. But, um, and but thanks yeah, for
2: the call from Collingwood.
0: Yeah. and But it, it is not, uh, they think that. It is absolutely sure that. That's the way this DNA works. DNA is so they not. they did figure out. Yeah, they, they, the they, they know who the, these young young fellows were. Yeah. And uh, it's very interesting that the grand, the the mother, um, people are saying, well, that doesn't sound like something that she would do. I don't know. My mm. guess will, more shall be revealed over time. Yeah. I'm sure. But as she's passed away, you can't ask her that question, Yeah, you know? So it's interesting. It's an interesting case and uh, it's one that uh, I'm glad is solved finally. Okay, let's listen to one more voicemail.
1: Hi there. I'm just calling from a small town in Manitoba. It's called Rivers and my name is December, like the 12th month. Um, I'm just calling because recently I have learned that my husband's um, great grandfather was a Bernardo- child um they're also known as immigrant children or home children and they were children taken from europe that were considered um, unfit to be with their parents and brought to canada and used as pretty much slave children um and i thought maybe that might be something you guys would like to talk about so uh yeah if you do that'd be great uh thanks
0: that yeah that is a weird thing to talk about um yeah, it could be an interesting episode. I think so too, and it's one that I've kind of been bashing around in my head. Yeah, we've since I learned about, it. about yeah. it a little bit, right? Yeah,
2: because it was it's um something that not you don't hear very often.
0: Yeah, anyway, yeah, uh, thanks for bringing that to our Thank attention. You. And uh, it's interesting that you know her husband's grandfather. I think she said was yes. wow. So yeah, like again, here we are. There are real people behind all of these, all these stories. stories. And that's why I love this voicemail, uh, aspect that we have on the show because we get to hear from real people. It's Mm -hmm. not just a story story.
2: Some of them are mean to us as well.
0: Well, the mean ones we don't play (laughs) and the mean people can uh, go take a big old shit in their hats. Yeah. Heathers. What's that? Heathers. Oh, Karens. Yeah. But Heathers before their Karens were called Heathers. Karens and Chads. (laughs) Anyway, that's it for this week's voicemails. Again, you can leave us one at one eight seven seven three two seven five seven eight six 327 5786 or one eight seven seven D A We'd love to hear from you, even if it is just to say hi and to tell us to go shit in our hats. If you're stumped for what to chat with us about, a quick story is welcome. And on to patrons. Look at that. Our first patron has re-upped patronage with us yay and her name is kathy lamanis hi kathy lamanis we yes, know you we know her very well and kathy actually does the books for dark poutine uh, so, so she's recognizing <laughs> oh god we gotta up these patreons so you guys are in such poor shape that the bookkeeper has to help you out so we know where she is and what she does because she helps us so can i do a little like ad for patreons here Sure. I recently
2: read that Reba McIntyre is worth ninety five million dollars. Right. And I think we need to close the gap for Mike here by having just a little bit. You know, ninety five million versus we need some donut money on Patreon. We're not asking much.
0: I'm not at zero because I don't have. I don't, I don't have any. I don't have any debt in my life. But I'm not. I'm not anywhere near ninety five million dollars. I'm not near a million dollars. I'm not near a hundred thousand dollars, dude. I'm not near $50,000. I, I think $50. I have $50 in my bank account today. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. So thank you so much, Kathy, for Thanks, stepping Kathy. up. We really appreciate it. Um, the next one we have is from Shererville, Indiana, in the United States. Allison Farn. Allison Farn. And what does- What's Chererville? A- Chererville. Spell that. S C H E R E. R V I L L E. Oh, it is Sharerville. 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 Yeah. So, uh, what does Allison Farn do there in Sharerville? And I'm, pro- who knows how they pronounce things? I get corrected all the time and I don't care anymore. She's NASCAR Pit Crew. NASCAR Pit Crew. Yeah. I didn't know they had NASCAR in Sharerville. Well, they we have the Indianapolis 500. Right, they do. But that is not I know. NASCAR. I know. But, you know, my mind's just clicking here. And also, you're not a sports person, are you? I used to watch NASCAR when I was a kid. You like the
2: rugby, but I, like I know it.
0: that's because you like the men's bums and the tight That's shirt. how it started, and then I started
2: to like the game. <laughs> but yeah, no, NASCAR was the, like, we used to go to NASCAR all the time.
0: I actually like watching racing, but uh, I... Probably shouldn't go without covering up my ears because my hearing's already poo-pooed. What? Exactly. (laughs) Next we have from Rahway, New Jersey. Hey, I've heard of that place. Kayla Davila. Kayla Davila from Rahway, New Jersey. Hey, she's from Jersey. She probably knows Tony Soprano. (laughs) Um, If he was a real person, she might know him. Mm. But anyway, uh. What does Kayla Davila do there in Rahway, New Jersey? She's a hit woman. She's a hit woman. Yeah. Well, there you go. What does she hit? Um. <laughs> what does she hit? Raccoons with her car. Maybe. No, leave the raccoons alone. Right. Raccoons and porcupines, poor Old, things. Poor little guys. They're so slow and stupid. Uh, just, I'm, all I'm saying is if you need something looked after, She'll take care She's of it. She's the one to call. Does she have like a special method that she does things? She doesn't talk about it. Ah, I wouldn't either, you know. <laughs> Next, we have Deborah Ambridge Fisher. And I don't know where Deborah is from. Could be anywhere on the planet or even some other galaxy.
2: Do you know, <laughs> there's, a, <laughs> there's a place in, I think it's in Simcoe County in Ontario called Nottawa. Ottawa because uh, it's not Ottawa it's not Ottawa oh okay. so she's from Ottawa she's from she's from not Ottawa okay Ottawa and what does she
0: do in Ottawa
2: she's a folk singer
0: she's a folk singer yep yeah. does she have any particular songs that uh she is famous for or anything like that or
2: yeah she sings um I could have been Miss Punta Blanca with uh with a ukulele
0: a ukulele yeah. My friend Alicia plays a ukulele. I could have been Miss Punta Blanca. Well, there you go. I could
2: have thought I said no, yeah.
0: <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> anyway. It's a Jane Sibri song. It sure certainly is. I like Jane Sibri. She was the Mimi on the beach. Yeah. Mimi on the beach.
2: Yeah, she was good.
0: Yeah. I miss her, actually. Yeah. She's probably still kicking around. She's she still this stuff. She changed her name for a while. What did she change it to? Uh, I can't. Shane pick. Zibbery. This is Shane Zibbery? No,
2: it's um, I can't remember. But anyway, yeah, she changed it. Hmm.
0: Interesting. Hmm. I wonder why. I guess we'd have to ask Jane Zibbery. Yeah. That would be a good episode of Dark Routine. We talk to Jane Zibbery about why she changed her name. Yeah, I would do that. Uh, and that is it for patrons. Let's. Drum roll, please. Let's check to see if we got any donut money this week. I'm pretty certain that we did. All right. We had one donut money donor this week, and it is Geraldine Ogden. And Geraldine is from Victoria, British Columbia. Vic Vic Victoria. Victoria. Thank you so much, Geraldine. Uh what does Geraldine do there in Victoria, Matthew?
2: She works for Parliament. She's in the she's in Parliament. The, the legislature? Yeah. Provincial okay. parliament. Yeah. Provincial Parliament. Don't look at me like it's, I'm saying it wrong. It is the legislature. But it's also
0: known as the provincial parliament. In Ontario.
2: What? It's not the same here?
0: No. <laughs> they don't call it provincial parliament. No, we call it a legislature. Really? Look at me, school and Matthew. How about them apples? Wow. hmm No, yeah, in Ontario, you are an MPP.
2: Okay, she's a legislature then.
0: <laughs> so she's an M- MLA is what she would be. A member of the legislative assembly—is that what they call them here? That is what they call them here. She, and okay, in, she's a MLA, and I believe in every other province in Canada. I am not a hundred percent sure of that, but other than Ontario, I don't think that Why there's a different
2: Ontario because I they think well, they're the center of
0: everything. Yeah, right. <laughs> I don't know. It's the elephant's trunk. So she's an MLA. Well, thank you, Geraldine, and uh, thank you for helping to keep us safe through that pandemic.
2: Indeed. Cause, uh, yeah,
0: because that was rough. I want to move to Victoria. Uh, I love Victoria. I want to move there, too. <laughs> I would love, love, love to live in Geraldine, Victoria. do
2: you have a room to rent?
0: <laughs> there you go. Thanks to all our patrons and Donut Money donors, past and present, for your generosity. It helps to keep the show going. You can become a patron of Dark Poutine at patreon.com slash Poutine. For a one-time donation, you can send us donut money via PayPal using our email address, darkpoutinepodcast at gmail.com. If you don't already subscribe to the show, it would mean a lot if you did. You can easily find Dark Poutine on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. If you haven't gotten yours yet, my book, Murder, Madness, and Mayhem, is available to order via a link on the Dark Poutine website. And speaking of darkpoutine.com, please check it out for show notes and other cool stuff. We'd appreciate it if you took the time to give Dark Poutine a like or a follow on Facebook and Instagram. Most importantly, thank you for listening. And tell your friends about us. Word of mouth is a powerful thing. Until we return, don't forget to be a good egg and not a bad apple. Everybody, goodbye, Matthew. Why did you wait for me there? You like you uncomfortably just stared at me, shaking your head. (laughs) I didn't know
2: what to do. Okay, I didn't want to say goodbye to everyone. No,
0: we're not really saying goodbye. We're saying
2: see you later till next week.
0: Yeah, exactly.
2: See you later till next week. See you later. Be good, yapples.